Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Gilbert, Arizona. We're getting to that part of the year where things are really, really nice in Arizona. It's the best part of the year. We get to do things outside, and I'm very, very excited for it. There's been a little bit of a tease back and forth where it's you know nice for a few days, and then all of a sudden today we're back up above 100. So we're getting there. Halloween is kind of the day that we search for and wait for uh, here in Arizona for, you know what, that's the best time of the year, October to May. We have really, really nice weather and it's probably one of the best places in the world to live. So we're excited for that. Um, if this is your first time listening to our podcast and you're wondering what it is that we do, we're here as a podcast to highlight small business owners and what they're doing in their businesses, what they're doing in their communities, their successes, their failures. And we're going to be making a shift here in the podcast in the near future. So uh, definitely listen in and, and uh, look forward to what we're going to do there. We're going to switch more to an advice-based podcast. And so we're going to share some advice from our side of the table and what, what it's been like with the business owners that we work with day in and day out. And then we're also going to invite some experts in in the small business arena to share their advice and different things that they've learned and what they do to benefit the small business community. So hopefully you look forward to that. We've been doing it in this format for over three and a half years now, and we decided it's time to kind of switch it up a little bit. We've gotten some feedback from some people that they'd like to hear more advice from us and, and what it is that we do in the small business owner community. So looking forward to that. But today we definitely have a couple of uh, tycoons on the podcast with us. We've got David Sadolsky and Marie Parker that are joining us, and they're the, they're the CEO and the COO of Boulder. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much. It's yeah. an honor to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. We're, we're in Southern California, so we're blessed to have temperature pretty constant year-round. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I have lived in Southern California. My wife is a, is a native Southern Californian. She grew up in Irvine. Uh, matter of fact, her parents have lived in the same house since 1969 in Irvine. Wow. And, yeah. That's, yeah. So they're now right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're 94 and 89. Um, they were one. They So they moved in in the very first neighborhood, as far as I know, uh, in the city of Irvine. My wife's older sister thought that her parents had moved her to the country. Oh my God, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. I, can see, cool. I see that. I grew up in Huntington Beach and Irvine, you know, in, in the 90s and early 2000s wasn't very what it is now. So it's, yeah, it's pretty impressive. And wow, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. They they bought the house for $36,000, put 30000 into it, finishing the upstairs and putting the pool in. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know exactly, but the house is probably worth about two million bucks now. So at least, yeah, easy. Easily. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yep. So uh, let's start by having you guys tell us a little bit about you guys, about you personally. So I, I know a little bit about you guys personally. You guys have different backgrounds, but have connections where you guys kind of worked together in different aspects. And so kind of tell us the personal side and then tell us how you guys are connected business-wise as well. All right. Really me? Yeah, ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so I grew up in South Africa, a uh, very long way away from here. And I yeah, lived there until I was uh, 25. So young and ambitious, believing I could do anything in the world. I um, immigrated with a job opportunity. Um, I moved to the UK and lived most of my 20s in the Europe. So UK and Belgium. And then um, uh, 2010, I moved to the US. So I've been here for 13 years. So definitely have like a global perspective on life um, and some really cool experiences through that. Um, a lot of that was with a, a company I worked for for 14 years. So I had a 14 year career um, in the logistics industry, where which is um, where David and I met. Um, so yeah, it's, our overlap starts in logistics, oddly enough, and lands us here in um, outsourcing or in global talent markets. Um, yeah, so it's, it's it's a bit of a bit of a roundabout story. Um, other than that, I have two little boys. They're five and ten years old, and they are at the heart of I think everything that I do, um, and where I spend most of my time and energy outside of work, <laughs> probably at this point. Um, yeah, do you want to? You can you can give more more depth to the the overlap. Yeah, I'd love to. Come together. Um, so as I mentioned, I I grew up in Southern California went to SC, um, graduated there. And I knew ever since I was a little kid that I really wanted to uh, do business and work outside of the United States. Um, my parents and families from Mexico and I always dreamed and really had a good memories of visiting the tortilla factory that my grandfather set up in New York City um, and really knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur overseas. And I'm really trying to figure out why I wanted to do that, but I just knew ever since I was a kid that like exploring the world was something that I wanted. So I, um, as Marie mentioned, I uh, we, we worked in global logistics. Before that, I studied at SC International Business and Entrepreneurship and had the opportunity to uh, um, study abroad in Hong Kong, which was great. Um, when, I, when I came back from university, I, I knew that I, I was desperate to get back out overseas. And the easiest way to do that was through working at international shipping or in international logistics. And at the time, um, my boss, who um, is the linking point between Marie and I, Jeff Bauer, uh, he was responsible for setting up the shared service centers or the, the basically in-house um, outsourced operations for our 30,000 uh, person logistics company. So we were setting up centers in Shanghai, Cologne, Dublin, Manila, uh, Johannesburg, Chicago, and it really gave me an understanding of how powerful of a tool outsourcing could be. Um, if yeah, yeah, how how it could be. And so, in the midst of doing that, um, I wanted to start my own company. You know, had very strong entrepreneurial desires, and so left um, UTI to start our first business. Um, and it was actually really working in the Philippines to start. And at that time, outsourcing was exploding. Uber was hiring hundreds of people. They were actually hiring recruiters to hire recruiters, um, just given how the scale at which they were moving at. And so um, my business partner and I really wanted to get into this and offer the what was tr traditionally reserved for Fortune 500 and large organizations to small startups and scrappy business owners who wanted to take advantage of the global labor market. Um, Marie and I had the opportunity. She was my first boss at UTI. We both worked for <laughs> Jeff Bauer. Um, it was amazing. I think one of the things that I deeply appreciated about her was just the amount of time that she was willing to give like a lowly intern. Um, she would teach me the, you know, the acronyms in the industry, what we were actually doing, what, you know, a house bill was, 
a master goal and the difference between those because I would never get it. Um, and I just really respected the amount of teaching that was like ingrained in Marie's belief system and how she really wanted to support anybody and everybody be successful. And so as my like as my entrepreneurial endeavors started thriving and like specifically this company Boulder, always wanted to work with Marie and bring her into the business because if she treated um, you know, an intern that well, I, it would it blew my mind what she could do with, with the rest of the company. And so I had that desire to work with her since day zero. And now here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so that was, you know, day zero, you would add the desire to work with her. How, how far into your guys' journey at Boulder are we now? Yeah, great question. Um, I actually had to check because I've been saying six years, but it's actually seven. Um, so we're about seven years old. Um, launched in February of 2017. Yeah. And it's been a it's been a whirlwind of a journey. Awesome. So a couple of things. One, I'll have you just tell us really what at its core what Boulder does and, and why you guys are a little bit unique. And then part of that question I want you guys to answer is you guys are a public benefit corporation or a B Corp. And a lot of our listeners are not familiar with what a B Corp is. So explain what it is and why you guys chose to go that direction. Perfect. I'll do the first part. You can do the B Corp part. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Boulder helps companies to build their global teams. I think the most, uh, the terminology that um, makes it easy for people to understand is outsourcing. A lot of people that immediately go in their minds to call centers. Um, I think we feel a little uncomfortable when we hear that terminology because there's a lot of um, stigma um, around that around the industry and the way it's traditionally done. And I think there's part of um, David didn't go into too much detail. Uh, part of the story of where Boulder started is really about doing things different and doing things in a way that stops marginalizing the team members and the communities in these transactions. Because what you typically find in an outsourcing relationship is that the company that is taking advantage of these global um, talent and the company that's you know enabling it, they benefit. But the team members and the communities that the work where the work's being done tend to get marginalized. So when David set up Boulder, it was very, with a very clear intent to not do that and to do that in, in a different way. So um, while Customer support is a very common area to start in outsourcing. And you'll find, so we tend to find our footing with clients in that because um, the industry is generally comfortable with it in that space. What we found is as we go deeper with clients, um, they start to realize that we can find talent, we can find talent in these markets. And we know that talent is equally distributed in the world, but opportunity is not. And we're helping to like to to you know to make those links and to find this unique talent for our clients in these markets. So it is that's I think that's why we tend to like shy away from the idea of of call centers exactly or specifically. And even outsourcing feels like it's not just outsourcing; it's finding a, we help you build, build your global team, and we can build that team for you in a way that makes sense for you. And we can find talent in any area of your business and help you set it up either through our expertise in customer support, for example, or enable you to manage these team members directly yourself in an area where you have expertise for any like back office support or engineering teams or data. I don't know, just architects, data architects, and. My favorite one is a client I just visited yesterday. Like um, we have robot pilots. We literally have 
there's robotic arms in fulfillment centers all around the world where if something goes wrong with that arm and a human needs to in, in, intercept, that's our team. So it's anything from robot pilots to customer support to data engineers, like we can help you find talent. Love that. Yeah, great. And I think to to get, I'll get into the B Corp versus B, uh, public benefit corp as a like, difference in a, in a second. I just, I, I think it would do us well to frame this a little bit um, as to why. And so I, I mentioned Jeff, the, the individual who Marie and I both worked for. Um, him and I set up our first business together um, in the Philippines, and it was a very traditional outsourcing company. And things were going really well at that business. And then three years into that business, uh, Jeff Bauer suddenly uh, passed away. He died of an aneurysm when he was on a call with our largest client at the time. And mm -hmm. for me, I was 26, I think turning 20, I think I just turned 20s. I was just turning 27 at that time. And it was the first time that somebody in my immediate circle passed away. And, um, you know, he was my best friend. He was my business partner. He was my mentor. And so for me, it was just this extreme crisis um, in my life. And I really struggled with it. And I remember asking myself these questions, like, am I living the life that I want to be living? Am I doing, like, if, if I was to die today, would I be living the life that I was proud of? And unfortunately, a lot of those answers were no. And so I like to think that, um, you know, Jeff's passing was his final teaching to, to me and that he was teaching me the opportunities to live a life that was doing good for the community around us. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, the business that we were running was okay, but it could have been much more if we focused our time and energy in serving the team member in the community. And so by birthing Boulder, we really wanted to honor that, that lesson, that legacy that Jeff left behind for us, because both Marie and I were deeply um, saddened by his, his, uh, his sudden passing. And so when we set Boulder up from day zero, we knew we wanted to serve the team members in the community. We knew that we wanted to give back. And what we found was that being a B Corp really set us up for them. Uh, for those who don't know, B Corp is a network of about 6,000 um, certified B Corp uh, companies. And it's really a designation that you carry. So you have to go through a verification process. The process could take anywhere from three months to a year. It took us a little bit longer than that because we were in COVID. And what they do is they really verify your, essentially the approach that you have for transparency, how you're having accountability within your supply chain, whether or not you're paying people living wage, whether or not you're employing people as contractors versus full-time employees to avoid that misclassification issue and how you're giving back and whether or not your business was designed for that. Um, so fortunately we passed and what we found was that as we became a B Corp, we were indoctrinated into this network of other business owners, other like-minded people who were trying to do, um, change the business paradigm. You know, people, commonly refer to business or the old way of doing business was a winner takes all. But now, you know, there's this belief that, you know, we all can win together. And so it's been really exciting for us. Um, B Corp also strongly recommends that you become a public benefit corporation. And what that means is that you actually amend your articles of incorporation to say that you're not only serving shareholder interest, but that there is a interest beyond that's greater than that. And it's for the greater good. It could be around um, sustainability practices, so how you're serving the planet, which is a large component of a lot of B Corps are really focused on serving the planet. It could be serving um, um, at-risk youth or individuals in the community, which is where we, we spend a lot of our time and energy and amended our articles of incorporation that way. Um, so we're really proud to have that because for me, it, it really means that you know our shareholders and Boulder is an employee-owned business. We don't have investors. We have employees who own this business, but Everyone who is an owner in, uh, in Boulder also recognizes that we exist not just to make money, but to do good with that money. 
So that's really who we are, what we do, and also the difference between there. Happy to dive into any of those areas as you think is helpful. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's, especially over the last, call it five years, I mean, I think COVID really kind of pushed a, a lot of this to where this entrepreneurship that uh, that also drives other types of value has kind of come to the forefront, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you're probably familiar with conscious capitalism. 100%. Yes. You know, and and I I feel like what you're describing is this, you know, this public benefit corp is a step beyond conscious capitalism. I mean, I feel like con this is my view, right? So my viewpoint is that conscious capitalism is better than the way that traditional capitalism is viewed. But I think it's like a half a step between what you guys are doing and traditional capitalism. Is that fair, a fair way to put it? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think what what I loved about becoming a public benefit corporation and then also being involved in the network of B Corp certified businesses is they actually help you really understand how you can create a theory of change in your business. So how can your business engine, how can the economic function of your business actually do good? Right. And we can spend like, or I, I could spend a lot yeah. of time talking about how our theory of change supports the community around us, but like that's me getting on my soapbox. So I don't know if we want to get on that. That's a, that's a There's something beautiful about that. And it is a part of this process is that I've met a lot of entrepreneurs or, or business owners who have their business and they want to do good in the world. And they have this like impact side of their business. And the challenge with that, and I think it's great. I think it's beautiful to say, hey, I do this, but I also donate to the community or my team members participate in these things. I think it's a beautiful place to start. I think we've been challenged over the last few years and have really internalized that to really have sustainable impact though, your impact that you're having has to be a part of your economic engine of your business. Because when it's not, there's always a risk of it being sidelined somehow and somewhere, right? You might not have an intention for that, but if, as soon as you get, if you get an investor or if your ownership structure changes or the economic circumstances change, like if the impact that you're having isn't directly um, like aligned with or incorporated in the, in the work that you're doing or the service that you're delivering, there's always a risk that it can get deprioritized um, at some point. So I think it's a, this part of being in the structure is it's forced us to really internalize how do we create sustainability in the impact that we're having by making it part of our economic engine and how we do business. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's great. And I'm happy to unpack that as, as much as you guys want to talk about, about that, because I think, you know, if I put myself in the position of a lot of business owners that would be listening to this podcast, they may look at it and say, well, I mean, we outsource to these countries because the labor costs are lower than they are in the U.S. to get some of the same stuff done, right? So they may look at it and say, I can pay, I'll pick a number, I can pay 50% of the cost to have it done in another country, and maybe I get 80% as good a work, or maybe I get 90, or maybe I get 100%, or maybe even 110%, right? But the, the question is, from a from a from an ownership standpoint, they're looking at it and saying, "Well, with me outsourcing, that's only generating me call it a ten percent profit margin for my business anyway." Yeah. And so, can I really afford to do these other good things in inside of my business? Or, you know, the, the prevailing wage that's paid in this particular country is X. Why should I be paying X plus 
whatever percent, right? So maybe kind of address that because I know that's a, a core tenet of what you guys do and, and why that makes you guys different. Yeah. And that's a good question. It's Thank a you. fun question. I think I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. And Marie, feel free to jump into it. Sure. Um, so I think what's wrong in the in the existing outsourcing model? Um, aside from what Marie mentioned on who wins and who loses, the industry is plagued with horrible stories of um, team members being essentially, you know, marginalized and dehumanized in the workplace. Um, you know, not necessarily employed with benefits or as contractors. And so those type of toxic work environments lead to high turnover. So our industry, you know, in the Philippines, turnover is as high as 40, 50%. In South Africa, it's even higher on 70 to 80%. And as a company, we have an industry like best like retention, like our retention is significantly better than the than the metrics there, where our turnover is less than 10%. And what we believe and what we're so passionate about is creating these teams, treating our team members well, and by keeping them and by having team members who are staying with our clients longer, they be, they start building this tribal knowledge where they're able to do more than just like what's defined in the SOP or the work document. They're able to know the client's product, make recommendations, and be a true extension of their goal of their team. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why we use this language of team member versus like outsourced FTE or agent is because that's just it. I think when clients realize the opportunity to really invest in these global team members who, you know, are earning somewhere 30, 50% lower than Americans in these other markets. Um, there's a, there's a massive opportunity to really invest in them because the return on that investment is significant. And so I want to pause and see what Marie wants to add, and then I can keep going on this. Sure. Yeah. I think it's for a business owner in that situation, like asking those questions, it's important to think about the, the why you're outsourcing, but also to remember that just because a, an individual is on the other side of an SLA or on the other side of the ocean, that doesn't make them all of a sudden not human, right? To, to check in with yourself, like if this is somebody I hired that sat in the office next to me, how would I be treating them? What would my expectations be? And I be, and am I being realistic of extending those same expectations or treatment or approach to these team members that I'm sourcing through a partner? Um, and so that's why, so we're very careful with the language that we use. Like we are hiring new team members. We are your partner in doing this. Like if your approach is that I'm going to find a vendor to outsource this work to and not care about how those people are being treated, I think it's okay being intentional about your decisions. And then it's important to understand the risks that come with that in terms of the quality of service that you get and the amount of time you're going to have to um, invest your time and energy and training because of turnover. So it's a you know the gains uh, the 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 risk versus the the expense is just the trade off at the end of the day because the time amount of time and energy you're spending on retraining people all the time is probably going to be more at the end of the day than just paying a fair um, a fair market rate. And that being said, I don't think um, we're not the the cheapest in the industry, but we're also definitely not the most expensive, yeah. right? So. We have, uh, and that's part of what we touched on a little bit earlier about working the impact into your economic engine is I'm going to deliver an excellent service. I'm going to find you incredible talent that are, that are managed well, and I'm doing it at a market rate. So I'm actually not uh, asking for anything special to achieve this. And the reason we we're, we want to prove that we are proving that this is all possible to challenge the whole industry, because it's not necessary to marginalize anybody in this. It really isn't. 
you can get the yeah. you want, um, both at, from a like a you know from a from a business and a profitability perspective, um, and from a you know human and quality perspective. You can get it all. You can you don't have to compromise. Yeah. So just a real quick follow up, and then I'll let David jump in with with more to you know color to that. But um, how do you guys define a living wage or a fair wage, right? Because everybody knows, you know, these aren't exact numbers, but there are countries throughout the world, some that you've mentioned, the Philippines, for example, where you can you can hire somebody for call it five bucks an hour. You might be able to even do it for less, right? But what? how do you guys define the living wage that you guys are paying people in those countries? Yeah, that's a really fun question. And I'll, I'll put energy into this one because it's been a it's been a, a a journey i think we really started obsessing around this idea of living wage about two and a half three three years ago and and really um you know we're all familiar with the term minimum wage it's and you know government mandated minimum amounts that we can pay people the idea of a living wage is what what you need to pay somebody in order to you know elevate them outside of like these systemic poverty loops or essentially earning an income that allows them to um, better their, their circumstances as opposed to being, you know, having to like expense or expend all of their money that they're earning in all, like, you know, household care, family care, food, transportation, et cetera. And so it's, it's, it's the base minimum. And part of my journey was I actually thought going into this that we wouldn't be able to pay everybody a living wage because it would be too expensive and it would impact our bottom line too significantly. And then um, what we started learning was that, especially in these in these global economies, was that there's no MIT. And what I mean by that is in the U.S., you could go to like living wage, if you Google living wage and then MIT, MIT has this really rich database that aggregates living wage data per city and neighborhood in the entire U.S. That doesn't really exist in the Philippines um, and, South or South Africa or Mexico. Mexico. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the big challenge there is that we had to partner with um, nonprofits, universities, and think tanks to understand how they're thinking about living wage in, in these markets. Um, the data that exists today is not as sophisticated as the data that we get out of the US. So it's been it's been a journey. And at some point about a year and a half ago, you know, we one of the things that I'm really grateful for about being a part of B Corp was that B Corp, you know, as a part of being a public benefit corporation, they also encouraged us to join the United Nations Global Compact. And as soon as we did that, we got access to these universities, uh, professors and, and uh, think tanks. And they really helped us understand how they're defining living wage in these markets. You know, and essentially a lot of these groups are doing survey, uh, collating survey data to understand household income, household expenses, and what the, what the prevailing wage should be in order to get people out of these poverty loops. And so in the Philippines, we, we partnered with a couple of different groups, um, one of which that I'd highly recommend people who are curious about this to Google is the Anchor Institute. And we could share that later so that you have that. But the anchors have done, this is like their life's work. They've, they've been working on this for a very long time, 30, almost 20, 30 years now. Um, and they're doing really sophisticated studies in market. Um, but yeah, anyways, in the Philippines, what we realized was that we, we're gonna, we would have to make a decision on which group we wanted to support and back. And for us, we, we partnered with a couple of different groups and finally implemented a living wage in the Philippines about a year ago um, that really set uh, the floor price around 25,000 pesos. 
And what we realized was that this is only going to be for the bottom end of our salary band. So in salary bands, you know, the living wage isn't necessarily in the in the middle. It's it's the base, the, the minimum amount that we're going to pay people. And so the, the impacted individuals were people that we were hiring from nonprofit groups that didn't have any experience, didn't have necessarily any um, you know, traditional experience in the digital economy and also individuals that are helping us clean our offices and facilities and so, or people who are just entering the job market. And so the total impacted people when we, in, when we set the living wage floor, it was less than 10% in the Philippines and in South Africa, it was even lower than that. Um, and now we're moving into Mexico, which is an, an also incredibly challenging market to define and measure this living wage trend. The other thing that you can do is that you can, because living wage data is dependent on um, household expenses and cost of food, cost of transportation, it's gonna be different by city or um, you know developed cities. And so in the Philippines and South Africa and Mexico, it becomes incredibly difficult to measure what you pay somebody in Cape Town versus what you pay somebody in rural South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we're taking a stance that we wanna pay people agnostic of what city they live in within that country. So somebody in Manila is gonna earn um, a living wage that's the same as somebody in the province in Tacloban which really makes us feel great because it'll help um, de- declutter uh, a very congested city in Manila because people moved there because they could only have access to jobs there. And so by hopefully creating a base uh, salary in the, in the provincial markets that we're in, we're hoping to then elevate um, those markets and get people to you know not necessarily have to leave their homes if they don't want to. I would say I was just in Tacloban like a week ago in our provincial office, and it's not a hope anymore. It's real. Like we have a couple hundred team members um, that we've hired um, for a seasonal ramp. So it is unfortunately seasonal work, which is not ideal, but still I can see the quality of talent and the gratitude for these people to have access to this level of employment and career opportunity because it's they can find employment but you know once they want to move up in their career path they still inevitably have to move to these larger cities to get opportunities so creating career opportunities and access to these um jobs um where they live is huge it is huge so the overall like the larger impact you're having on a community by not breaking up families right and keeping people keeping families intact and keeping them um supported like kids getting to grow up with their grandparents and their aunts and their uncles like what a gift is that to to that local community by bringing these jobs there and setting it at a standard that is really um really makes a difference yeah and to and to put this more into a story you know 20 the we're paying 25,000 pesos and the average um salary of an entry-level BPO person or somebody that's getting hired through an outsourcing company um, is around 12,000, 15, around 15,000 pesos. And so when we did this in Tacloban and we had um, our janitorial staff earning a salary that allowed them to not have to work another, another job in order to make ends meet. And what happened is they actually started, were able to then start investing their time and energy into learning and development initiatives that we sponsor at Boulder and our nonprofit partners sponsor to help them get out of these um, janitorial jobs and have access to you know, more yeah. upward mobility careers. And so what the biggest lesson, and Marie, you're the one who told me, was like that we actually were able to talk to one of our former janitors who is now uh, helping one of our, our clients in the customer support area because they were trained and had the freedom to be able to invest their time into their own uh, career mobility. And so I get really excited about what we can do. And I think, you know, to for people who are thinking about outsourcing, 
for me, you know, you, you can save 60, 60% is what traditionally our clients save by outsourcing with us. Um, people, when they, when they think they, you know, move, move to overseas markets, uh, okay, I need to get the lowest amount possible because I'm doing this. And it's like, you can, if you're, if you want to, like you could pay somebody, you know, 15,000 pesos, or you could pay, you know, 25, 30,000 pesos and still have significant savings. Yep. Um, but hopefully, you know, by, by paying a little bit more in these markets, you're really, I think, setting it up for a better success. And in the end, like one of my advisors used to love to say, like, I know I can, but should I? And if you, you know, can afford to pay a little bit more, the ROI, in my opinion, will be much higher. Yeah, I mean, I think if somebody feels valued, right, they're going to they're going to provide a better outcome for you. They're going to provide a better work product for you than if they're just scraping by, so to speak. Yeah, I don't know any human that isn't seeking meaningfulness in the work that they do and why they're doing it. And yeah, I think that resonates in America. Like we see that with our team members here and globally as well. Like everybody is just wants to feel value and wants to have know that their work has meaning. 100%. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's dive into kind of the nuts and bolts of the business, right? Because what, what you guys do is tremendous. You guys, I, I believe, are having a tremendous impact on the global economy. Um, you may not feel that day to day, but I, I'm here to tell you, you guys are doing something that's that's really impactful to the global economy. So, you know, <laughs> kudos to, to you guys. Um, but, you know, the reality is you still have to build a business, right? You're building a business that's that's generating income for the two of you. It's generating income for all of these other people that, that are team members of yours. Um, and so, you know, the nuts and bolts still apply or the blocking and tackling, so to speak, still apply. So, you know, how do we go through that journey from founder and CEO to, I don't know, building an executive team, making your first executive hire or you know, reaching out to Marie and saying, man, you were awesome. I, I really want you to be here. I I'm doing something really cool here, but my guess, my gut tells me that it, it was probably partially, I probably can't afford you, Marie, but I'm really doing something really cool here. Do you want to be a part of it? That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, my, I, I feel like I, I would want to share what not to do because um, I think it could be helpful. Sure. Um, I think I spent a lot of time and energy, frankly, trying to manipulate or in, like encourage people and motivate people to join because of the altruistic being of the company. And what I wish I did differently um, is that I really wish I had a stronger grasp of the financial, um, you know, the financials of the business to really making sure that I could, you know, paint a clear picture that yes, the business can afford to onboard this executive um, and not necessarily just convincing them to join because it worked out with Marie, but I, in, in other instances, it, it didn't. And it led to quite dangerous consequences that took more, more time and more energy because of that. And so um, I'm really trying not to focus on the narrative of the story or why we exist, even though that's what drives me and gets me out of bed every day. I really want to make sure that our business model and our business plan can afford to onboard, you know, competent and qualified executives and that they choose us because of this. And Marie, if you want to share your story, I think it's, it, there's value in that. Um, yeah, I think there's, um, 
there's probably a, a layer deeper that could be helpful to the listeners here um, or anybody looking to make that first hire, like what the tipping point is like, or at what point yeah. did you're like, okay, I can't wear all these hats myself anymore. And then how do you, you know, how do you look at, at hiring that first person? So I'll leave that to you. Um, based on my personal experience, I would say be careful about, um, yeah, be clear about the the risk that an individual would have to take. I think it also depends on the background that you're hiring from, right? So when you're ready to to get that first executive hire in, um, if you are looking at people from your own personal network that maybe come from a um, from a corporate environment to understand the level of risk that they would be taking personally, um, professionally, financially, and make sure that they're ready for that. Um, I think I was fortunate enough that I was able to to handle it. I had some savings and <laughs> could you know see us through some of the the ups and downs of the reality of it. Because I, I mean, I left, I, at the time where I made the decision or I was in a position where I could come over here, um, join Boulder, I was at Amazon, Amazon Global Logistics, um, living the the dream job that landed up not feeling like a dream job. I learned a lot, super appreciative to the industry, to the, to the company, um, but it didn't, you know, my personal values weren't being, weren't being met. Um, which is why I made the leap, but I knew that I was going to take a, a big pay cut for this potential upside from an equity perspective. Um, and I think it be careful about the picture that you paint there in terms of what, you know, what that means, especially if you don't have a clear path to liquidity for that equity, it can be very inspiring, but it's also, um, if you're recruiting people that are at a later stage of their career, you've got to be real about the amount of risk that you're asking them to take. 100%. And I think just going back to the initial question, for me, it was, I was at capacity. I was already working 40 to 60 hours a week, um, more like 60 to 70 hours a week um, <laughs> doing everything. And I think for me, you know, I, I've been told and I, I recognize that I do have very high control tendencies. Um, and so at the time it was like the David, the David company or the, like the, like the David Corp. And I recognize that you know, we were at risk of losing great talent, not being able to deliver for our clients because of how much I was pushing on growth, 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 and, and onboarding new business. And so um, felt very lucky to bring somebody like Marie in. And the, the big thing that I focused on was augmenting my strengths and focusing on my weaknesses. And Marie comes from a, you know, a really rich process and systems background where frankly, like that stuff makes me want to crawl in a hole and like, forget my, like what I'm doing and why, like, it's just not how I think. And so I was lucky enough to acknowledge those strengths and see them in Marie. Uh, I really, really advocate for her to help build those systems to, to help us build like organizations and clear departments and set KPIs in place, how to manage better relationships with clients. And it really, it was really successful. Um, so really excited about that level. I think there was another stage of this development where, you know, Marie was essentially like business partner, co-founder level of onboarding. Like I, we were talking about her joining from day zero um, and spent a year dancing because she was at Amazon. So we had to go, go on a few dates before we, we actually like, committed to this uh, professional relationship. Um, with other executives though, that we've started to onboard, you know, we, we went through a process of not having clear clarity around the outcomes of what we wanted for the business. That's um, and what I didn't appreciate at the time was how dangerous it was to 
onboard and hire other executives without having clarity? Did we want to raise capital and you know go the private equity you know M and A route, or did we want to stay as a self funded business? And without really understanding that, we onboarded executives who were motivated and incentivized incentivized by me because I did it this way through an equity paycheck. Um, and when it came to the point that we weren't pursuing that you know private equity you know chase in that uh, position, which is good for many businesses, not what we wanted to do. Um, it ended up in, in disaster because the, the executives realized that they weren't going to have opportunity for their own financial benefit. Yeah. And so looking back, like I would really, really make sure that you're clear what you want for the business as a founder or owner of it. Yeah. And then how are you making sure that you incentivize people? Because if, you know, if you're not going to ever sell the business or you're not going to do that, then don't really give them equity because that's inherently meaningless right. and yeah so that's yeah. that's the biggest lesson that i've learned in hiring um and yes you could set up profit sharing or other mechanisms but that yeah that's the big one for me yeah so i think it starts with you being clear on what your financial goals and growth goals and so far are for the business which can take some time to figure out and to have some grace with yourself like hey if i don't know then either one it might not be a good time to bring somebody on or at least be very transparent with them about hey i'm trying to figure this out and find somebody who's going to help you figure it out and be willing to like step into that process with you if you're at the point where you know you're like hey i, I just want to keep this and self-funded well whatever or if you want to grow it through through equity and you want to have an, a clear exit strategy um, to make sure the people you hire are have the same goals and their goals align. Otherwise, it can be quite challenging. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, last, the last thing I'll say here, just because it was a massive learning opportunity, and I, you know, I'm somebody who doesn't necessarily have a financial background and I'm very gut oriented and like to fly mm -hmm. off the seat of my pants. But the point that I'm trying to get at is that we we couldn't compete with the hiring market for the executive talent that we needed at the company. And for me, I, you know, three, four years ago in my career, I was more focused on trying to frankly manipulate people to join us off of the, you know, the ethical component of what we're doing and get them excited about the mission, as opposed to looking at our business and saying, why can't we afford the talent? Like we're not running the business right. <laughs> and, and at the end, like we didn't, we our unit economics were broken. Like we we weren't um, making like charging clients what we needed to charge them based on what our competitors were charging. We are, you know, we had overexpensed in certain categories of our departments, like our OPEX was a little messed up. And so like needed to run a better business. And frankly, that was a really hard lesson for me to learn. And so I feel like yeah. in the last 18 months, like I got my mini MBA through that. <laughs> uh, but that, yeah, that like it's a hard look and you need to be able to build the business, you know, and also be able to pour, pay people what they deserve. Yep. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. I'll get off my soapbox. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no. No, I, I wouldn't say you're on a soapbox. I, I think there are some really important principles there that anybody can can learn from. The, the reality is it can go both ways, especially when you have a, a mission, you know, for from a culture standpoint, as well as doing good in the world to where you can actually go too far one way or the other. Right. So some businesses aren't willing to do enough. don't realize they can do enough good in the world because they're trying to put too much profit in their in their pockets. Yeah. And the other side can be true too. It sounds like you guys were so focused on the mission that you weren't charging enough to run the business in a profitable way. And we all know that if a business isn't profitable, you can't do any good in the world anyway. Nope. Yep. 
No, 100%. And Steve Goldenberg, one of um, my advisors and um, brief CEO at the time in the company, he, he really forced that lesson into me was yeah. that, you know, he would, he used words like intentionally, like, David, you're running a nonprofit. Yeah. And, and we he, were like, well, offended. We're like, oh. But he was right. right. <laughs> and when he forced me to recognize that, you know, this was coming from, I, I feel like I've been humbled pretty, pretty aggressively based on, uh, on this. But, you know, this was coming from a guy who thought as profit as, frankly, evil. And what he helped me shift that mindset was that, no, this isn't evil. It's oxygen that's going to allow you to, you know, invest in other departments, invest in leaders, pay people correctly, you know, expand and do, you know, R&D that will allow you to compete your, or compete with your competitors. So it was a really hard lesson for me, um, but I'm glad I learned it because you're absolutely right, Austin, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing that, you know, that really I keyed in on is the fact that you, when you're building a startup like this, you want to get the best high quality executives that you can get, right? And typically you're hiring people just like you did with Marie that has have been with a really large corporation and maybe they're overseeing a certain department or a division, but the but the reality is they're getting paid pretty well to do that. And they've got a really big stack of benefits, right? I mean, really nice healthcare, really nice 401k plan, you know, all, maybe there's profit share, maybe there's restricted stock, maybe there, I mean, there's so many things that they're probably benefiting from. And so there has to be a reason for them to come over. But the reality is some of the best executives in startups have that exact background, yep. right? And so the message that you're portraying here is to the listeners, you've got to figure out what your sales pitch is. Now be authentic about it, be realistic about it, but what's your sales pitch to get them to come over yep. and then make sure that they understand what it is that they're risking by doing that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 100%. <laughs> yeah, and I will say like, I I wish that I'd been passively recruiting more often just to keep sense of what the labor market's at for VP at executive talent these days because I am so surprised with how much money um, executives or even like people in, um, you know, these bigger companies are earning. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's something that I really wish that I had a more like point of view on um, and was constantly looking at because it would help frame like how we're thinking about investing at the company. So, yeah. Yeah. I'd say, do, yeah, do yeah. your research and stay current on the, on the labor market for these types of roles. Cause I think as an owner, I think a lot of people get stuck in that where they don't, you don't pay yourself like market rate. And so you get a distorted view of, first of all, don't do that because it's not good for your business. If you're setting a really <laughs> realistic view of the profitability of your business. So pay yourself market rate or at least something there's, I'm sure Austin has a lot of advice on how to, how to do that. right. <laughs> but so first of all, but you tend to like, you know, pay yourself under market rate and then devalue or not be realistic about what the cost is of bringing people in who don't have that same, um, upside as you do as a founder and a, yep. you know, majority equity owner in a business. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. One, one more thing that I'll, that I'll mention that you kind of, uh, hit on there is the fact that, um, <clears throat> CEOs, founders, you know, entrepreneurs, we, we tend to have a, an overinflated ego and uh, we we start to, you know, we think that we're kind of good at everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, I'm not calling you out specifically, David, but what I'm saying is... Valid point. Be <laughs> 
because of that, we have a hard time letting go of things and letting other people do them, right? And, and I would say that there's a, there's a really good rule of thumb to follow in delegation period. So, you know, there's there's one aspect. So let me, before I go to delegation, one aspect is, can you be honest with yourself and what are the things that you don't do well, mm-hmm. right? And if you if there are things that you don't do well and you can hire somebody that does do them well, that that team, you know, that team aspect is is way better than trying to go at yourself with what you're able to do. Right. And then on delegation period. So even if you are good at something, but it's not your core, core competency. Right. Or you're not being the visionary of the company that you should be, for example, if somebody can do it 80 percent as well as you can, you should delegate it. Yeah. I want to add to that if it's something that doesn't bring you joy. Like if it's like you can be really good at it, but if it drains your energy, like it's not the right thing to spend your time on. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's funny because when when Marie would introduce herself at the business as I was <laughs> as I first hired her to client, you know, would you know, bring her to client visits and be like, I just hired this amazing person. Like, oh, what do you do? And she's like, I do everything that David doesn't uh, doesn't like to do. Um, and she'd say that to our team like I do everything that David doesn't like or want to do and I actually like how you framed it though Austin because like even though I didn't like doing certain things I think I should have really focused on what I actually do well because there's certain things that I do well that I didn't like and I think I put too much like responsibility and pressure on Marie to do essentially almost everything um, and would have really made sure and had more like looking back on it, I think hindsight's always 2020, but I would have been more aware of bandwidth constraints, not trying to get her to work, you know, as much as I was, which was over 40 hours a week because I, you know, anyways. You are two kids. <laughs> but my point being is that I think would allow you to then understand, okay, who's the next hire when you fill up that capacity and how are you making sure that you're getting the highest ROI? Because there were things that I didn't like doing, but I could have certainly taken them off of Marie's plate to get her focused and right. getting that massive fo- uh, ROI there too. That's fair. Yeah. 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 And I do think we have a tendency to like, we, we, we like to hire people who are like us and you're going to be, just be careful that when you're interviewing people, you, you, you're like, oh, you, you know, we get along because we have the same personality and we have the same interests and so forth. That can be really risky as well. Because you just, if you hire just another entrepreneur or another person who doesn't have focus or doesn't have, they don't complement your strengths, like you said, um, that can become really tricky. <laughs> or has this high, like the same risk tolerance. Yeah, I think I think having a balanced perspective and different ways of thinking Super. is very helpful. Very helpful. Yeah, we, I actually had a similar conversation with a client yesterday where we talked about the importance of having somebody that was willing to push back. Mm. right so do it in a respectful way they need to be able to do it in a respectful way and a a constructive way but you don't you don't want to be hiring yes men and women to be a part of your of your organization specifically your executive team you want somebody who wants to push back on the things that you're throwing out there do it in a respectful way everybody comes to you know the best decision together now ultimately the ceo has the final say right i mean that's that's the reality but they need to feel comfortable that they can push back and you need to hire somebody who's willing to push back and to challenge you on your ideas. Yeah. hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. As a, as a 1500 person organization, I think we've, we've really started to realize the importance of how to do that well and use language in order to push back well. And there's a group called the conscious leadership group that I'd highly recommend. 
because they give you a framework to really, you know, approach this, this conversation, have disagreements, but then also move through those disagreements in a beautiful way. Um, and so that like just language around how to have conflict, I think has been really helpful for Marie and I, but also our team. So absolutely agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of different ways we can go from here. We are short on time. And, and I think if you guys are okay with it, I asked Marie about this in our, in our initial, uh, interview, but, um, there are a lot of businesses in our country, really in the world where, they're kind of operated by people who also have personal relationships, right? And it's my understanding that you guys are in a personal relationship as well. And I'd love to get your feedback on how you guys separate work from personal relationship and and what you guys do proactively to make sure that the personal relationship is not affected by the business relationship and vice versa. Yeah. Cool in the cavalry. (laughs) Yeah, Austin. So I've been I've been pretty obsessed with this idea. Um, And it was funny. I was uh, Marie and I were on safari in South Africa and I met the owners of the lodge who was a husband wife team. And I sat down with him and asked him about this. And he he said, you know, he he sees it a lot as well. And he recognizes, and I see it as well, it can be a very powerful tool uh, when, you know, a husband or wife or partners um, in a romantic partnership are also building something together. It can be extremely beautiful force, but it could also be a disaster. <laughs> and what he's seen is that when typically when somebody, um, like in, uh, in our state, in our case, um, where, where he's seen it not work is when the romantic couple starts and that the partner will set up a business or start a business for, for their, their spouse or partner to, to run. When in our instance, Marie and I started in a, in a working relationship first, it taught us how to have disagreements. It taught us how to communicate. It taught us how to have friction. And then this lovely, beautiful romantic relationship opened up. And I think that's just something that I was surprised to see. And then there's like a lot of themes around that with other um, husband, wife, partner teams, in, in even our industry, um, there's a lot of people who are also like that. And I think the only other thing that I would say here is, um, you know, Marie and I are, are strong believers in the power of talk therapy and just therapy in general. Um, and our therapists have really helped us understand how to have those um, rules. And so, for instance, we have like a no rule, uh, no phones in the bedroom policy, which I really love. Um, so we don't have phones in our bedroom and the conversations are also, there's times where I have to, you know, ask Marie if I can speak to her as my partner or if I need to speak to her as my business partner and really getting clear who I'm talking to and when, because sometimes like, you know, if we're trying That's to go fair. on a date and I'm speaking about our PL and like how our EBITDA month over month, and she's like, Hey, like, can I talk to my partner? Like, I really want to have a dinner with, with my, with my husband and boyfriend or whatever as opposed to just my business partner. Marie, yeah. I, I'd love your ad-lib on this. <laughs> yeah, I think a support structure is important. Um, and the support structure is pretty broad, right? So even having the luxury of not having your phones in, in the bedroom with you as business owners, that means that you trust your team. <laughs> Working in a global company, like that, that's a pretty big deal. Um, but yeah, the support structure is super critical between um, having executive coaches or and or therapists, like having people that don't have a 
horse in the race, so to say, other than like helping the two of you succeed and navigate this is super, super, super important. Um, trying to do it by yourself is going to be hard. And I think other than that, the um, the same, I, I've figured this out, I think in the last few months, it's become really um, present for me about how being able to navigate conflict and disagreement is kind of fundamental to any successful relationship in your life. Because it's naive to think that you're not going to have it. And if you don't have it, that's actually a sign of dysfunction. So if you're if there's zero like conflict, then there's probably, you know, conflict avoidance, which is going to be, it's going to show up in other different ways. And that's that's got its own toxicity. So knowing how to navigate conflict is probably the most important thing to to figure out and be willing to navigate conflict. Yeah. And and, and yeah, set those rules. But it's yeah. hard. It's hard. It really bleeds into it. And it's and it's a blessing at the same time, right? Like we have so much to talk about and it's fun and it's exciting and we enjoy working together. So you enjoy talking about that stuff. So you gotta hold yourself to, hey, this weekend is we're not talking about work this weekend and we're gonna go away and have some fun and just be us. Yeah. And you know, I've talked to people in my um YPO um community about this, and there's a lot of husband wife teams there. And some of them have hard rules like, hey, after they leave the office, there's no talking about work. And for me, that that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't really work. It's just being mindful of when it's hogging the, the conversation. And, you know, Marie is fortunate to have two incredible boys. So there's a lot of other amazing things to talk about. Um, so, yeah, uh, happy to go if you have a particular question there, Austin, taking it somewhere else. But, yeah, it's a, it's a fun it's a fun question. So thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, no, I, I think you guys nailed it. You know, the reality is whether it's a romantic relationship or any partnership, some of the principles that you laid out are extremely important, right? Communicate, don't let frustrations build. Uh, make sure that you're specifying whether you're speaking to them as your business partner or as your friend or your romantic partner, whatever the case may be, uh, because that that does help you know, set those boundaries, set those guidelines so that everybody knows, you know, what, what, what's real. Cause I have a business partnership. Mm -hmm. um, Marie's met, you know, my business partner, um, but we were friends before we became business partners. And so we have to, you know, we have to specify what, which, which direction we're taking the conversation. And yeah. we have to make sure that we're having, we call them same page meetings, right. Where we're having those meetings on a regular basis to say, are we on the same page? Are, are you frustrated by something? Is is anything bothering you? Are you okay with this decision that I made? And, you know, I, I know I kind of made that unilaterally or, you know, whatever. And so okay. if, if the lines of communication are open, that's going to help everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I think language we've gotten used to using for that type of meeting is also, are there any open loops? Like there are things we started, but we didn't like close the loop on it. Um, yeah. Which, which is super helpful. Yeah, I think founders co-founders or business owners should go to couples therapy. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And I, so I've been married for 25 years, believe it or not. And uh, you know, yeah, thank you. We just celebrated that in August and she's not my business partner. Um, way, way, way early in our, in our marriage, we worked together yeah. Um and it did not work out well. <laughs> so we we discovered that that was not a good thing for for our relationship. Yeah. But even though we don't work together, we still have to focus on making sure that when we're communicating with each other, that we're not just talking about work, right? So whether it be my work or her work, it's, you know, let's talk about other things or 
as you start to raise kids, right? So, you know, these are Marie's kids, but you guys are, are essentially raising them together now. Um, that you're not only talking about kids either, right? I mean, it's a relationship between the two of you. There's the the kid relationship too, but you've got to make sure that you're nurturing that relationship together. Yeah, and and the relationship with yourself and making sure that you prioritize, you know, your own self-interest and keeping yourself, you know, like I think it's really easy to lose yourself in a relationship or in a business relationship. And I think it's been really important for us to have our own hobbies, do our own things as well. So 100%. Yeah. 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 I think that what's important about that with the children and with the work conversation is you got to remember that you're still hopefully going to be with each other, you know, once the kids are out of the house or once you're retired type of thing. Right. So this relationship, you're trying to curate and culture and build something that's going to outlast these moments. So these are moments that are important and impactful and they're obviously very inspiring for conversation but keep nurturing the flame of, of this relationship that's going to outlast these, these moments and chapters in our lives. Yeah, and just wrapping that up there, I, I do think it's important because you know Marie and I both have different timelines for how long we want to stay in, in this business. And I think it's important to have those conversations too so you can you know, uphold and respect that and, yeah. and make sure that you're building a plan because while I, you know, this is the most exciting thing that I've ever done in my life and I want to do it for the rest of my life, not everybody around me, you know, may, might feel that. Yeah. And there's other passions that they have. And so how do you have space to start planning for that if you are in, in those relationships? So, yeah. Yep. No doubt about it. Well, I've really appreciated the conversation. I think we could go on for another hour easily. There's there are plenty of things for us to talk about. But what I find is, is your guys' ability to communicate um, about what you're passionate about, about your organization, and then to give each other space to to share their perspectives mm-hmm. has been inspiring. So I really appreciate you guys being willing to come on our podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This is amazing. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon and be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.